Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Bertrand Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Molly Pool. That's not even what I meant to say, but whatever. Move on. <laughs> In this week's episode, Bro interviews Andrew Scott and Linda Gratton authors of The New Long Life, a framework for flourishing in a changing world. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. So Allison, what's up? Well, bro, the two-handed economist is back. For those of you who know us, you know that The Motley Fool is a fan of bottoms up, long-term buy and hold investing. As retail investors, we believe your best option for building wealth is to invest in great companies that you believe in and hold on to them as the stock price might hit some bumps and blips at the whimsy of the market. Oh, wait, there's an asterisk to this. We also think index funds are great. If you don't have the time and temperament to invest in individual stocks, then set it and largely forget it with a well-diversified portfolio of index funds. Well, it's a great option. So index funds are great. But on the other hand, are index funds of the devil? So Bro has talked about the basics and history of the index fund on the show before, but let's just remind ourselves. Index funds were the brainchild of Jack Bogle. He's the founder of Vanguard. He asserted that mutual funds at the time charged exorbitant fees and often delivered lousy returns. What a great combination. His idea was that instead of paying a premium to a money manager who tried to beat the market by choosing stocks, him or herself, you could just pay a much smaller fee to someone like Vanguard who will simply mirror an index like the S&P's holdings. You'll likely come out ahead because the actively managed fund needs to perform even better than the market, something that's already hard to do, and make up for the higher fee they are charging you. So first launched in the 70s, index funds took a while to gain steam. But according to The Atlantic's Annie Lowry, in an article titled, Could Index Funds Be Worse Than Marxism?, she writes, by 2016, investors worldwide were pulling more than $300 billion a year out of actively managed funds and pushing more than $500 billion a year into index funds. Some $11 trillion is now invested in index funds, up from $2 trillion a decade ago. And as of 2019, more money is invested in passive funds than in active funds in the United States. It's easy to see why money is flooding into passive funds. Only a quarter of actively managed mutual funds exceeded the returns of their passively managed cousins in the decade leading up to 2019, according to Morningstar. But as Annie writes for The Atlantic, Annie Lowry, what might be good for retail investors might not be good for the financial markets, public companies, or the American economy writ large. Poor K. So what's so bad about index funds? Well, like most things in life, too much of a good thing can be a pretty bad thing. So while we aren't there yet, some are concerned that in a world with exclusively passive investors, capital will get allocated only to the big companies and not necessarily to promising companies. That's because passive investing doesn't ask questions on earnings reports calls, passive investing doesn't listen to gossip or have an opinion on a new CEO. Passive investors are like cats. If it fits, I sits. So the fear is that as more money moves into passive investing at some point, 
it creates a feedback loop of money piling into the largest stocks of an index, which entrenches them even deeper in the index, which means the index funds have to buy more of it to match the index. All of this somewhat unrelated to the current or future success of the business. I should probably pause here to explain what market cap weighted means. If an index fund is equally weighted, it means the fund owns the equal dollar amount of shares for every company in the index. Every company has the same weight. If it is market cap weighted, the amount that a company is represented in the index fund depends on the market cap of that individual company. So to figure out a company's market capitalization, you multiply the number of shares by the share price. So Amazon's market cap is $1.67 trillion and Macy's is $4.85 billion. If both of these are in the same, let's call them a consumer retail index fund, there's going to be way more Amazon exposure than there is Macy's. All right. About 20% of the Vanguard 500 index is invested in five companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet. Five out of 500 stocks representing 20% of the fund's holdings. So let's take the addition of Tesla to the S&P 500 last year. The price surged 70% after it was announced that it would join the index because every index fund based on the S&P 500 would have to plow a ton of money into that company's shares, which would drive up the price, which means market cap weighted indexes would need to add more of it to the funds, and up goes the price, which means market cap weighted index funds need to add more of it, and around we go. Anyway, that's maybe the most obvious concern with index funds. Is it something to freak out about? I don't know. There's some other things you could freak out about. Another concern that's a bit more controversial is the impossible impact of common ownership. It's the thinking here that index funds tend to own all of the big players in any given industry. And therefore, investors who own all of the big players tend to care less about competition between the companies. They are all their favorite children, after all. So if you only care about the whole industry making more money, then one easy way for the whole industry to do that is to raise prices for customers as an industry. So whether this is actually a fallout of common ownership is up for debate. One paper showed that common ownership of airline stocks had the effect of raising ticket prices by 3 to 7%. And the uh, Atlantic article points to research showing similar effects in the pharmaceutical and retail banking industries. BlackRock disagrees, but then they are one of the, quote, big three. While the money in index funds has gotten very big, the players have dwindled in numbers. Many financial institutions offer index funds, but the big three, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, control 80 to 90% of the market. And they are the ones who actually hold the shares of the companies and, in theory, get to vote. But do they? Well, according to the American Economic Liberties Project, the big three cast roughly 25% of votes in S&P 500 companies. That's potentially three people making 25% of decisions. Uh, it doesn't quite work out that way, but that's three, three small companies with a lot of voting power. Are indexers distorting stock prices? Are they stifling competition? Or are they going to tear the very fabric of our financial system to shreds? Well, one thing most experts can agree on is that something probably needs to be done to keep passive investing from becoming too big. 
Some call it frothy or a bubble. Bernstein analysts say too much passive investing could be worse than Marxism in stifling competition. And even the CEO of State Street told the Wall Street Journal that it's almost inevitable when you see this kind of concentration that it probably will make sense to do something about it. And that, bro, is what's up. I'm growing older, but not up. My metabolic rate is pleasantly stuck. Let those winds of time blow over my head. I'd rather die while I'm living than live while I'm dead. In the words of that 80s movie sage Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Technological innovations, healthcare advances, and even changes in the way that humans interact will have a big impact on our jobs, our families, and even how long we'll live, at least until the robots take over, as Stephen Hawking once predicted. Here to discuss how to navigate all these developments are Linda Grattan and Andrew J. Scott, who are professors at the London Business School and the authors of a fascinating new book, The New Long Life, A Framework for Flourishing in a Changing World. Uh, Linda and Andrew, welcome to Molly Full Answers. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So that reference to Stephen Hawking actually came from your book where he said that AI could spell the end of the human race. And we might get to that later on in the interview. But first, let's address the issue of living longer, which, you know, is both a blessing and if not a curse, a reason to sort of rethink a few things. So, um, Linda, how much longer should we humans be thinking of in terms of potential longevity? Well, this is our second book on living longer. Our first book was called The Hundred Year Life. So, Robert, in a way, you can see that that the idea is in the title. So we, Andrew and I are really saying, you know, what happens if we live to 100? Now, there's another question, which is what happens if you live to 200 or 300 or 500? But for us, the 100 seemed to be doable possible and probably fun. So we, 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 we put up, we put on a hundred, but of course, look at our dear queen right now. She seems to be <laughs> pushing straight through there. So who knows? That's husband's, right. Husband's knocking on the door of a hundred as well. So. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. And you do. There's two things here. I think. One is kind of how far we will go. The other is how far we've come. And actually, most people aren't aware of the gains that already occurred. So we're kind of not adapted to live the length of life that we are currently expecting. You know, most people today will live into their 90s, and that's kind of government, not wacky science projections. Uh, and then, of course, the oldest person ever to live lived to 122 years, and I think 164 days. So, you know, I think actually, as I say, two parts. We haven't adapted to how long we're already living, hence all the problems around retirement. And then who knows how far we can go. Yeah, you cite actually some people in the book who believe that we could live to 500, even 1,000 years at some point. So who knows? Um, but to get to that point of sort of this transition from uh, what we're doing now to what we probably will have to do. Um, I, I thought of, as I was reading your book, an interview I did years ago with a guy named Mitch Anthony, who wrote a book called The New Retirement Mentality. And he said, we're a binge society. When we're young, we binge on education. When we're adults, we binge on work. And then as retirees, we binge on leisure. In your book, you kind of call it the three-stage life. Tell us why that model may no longer work in the future. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, this, time is a social convention. You know, we structure it as we wish. And in the 20th century, we invented the weekend, for instance. But we also invented the three-stage life. We invented a long period of education at the beginning. We invented teenagers in the 20th century. And we invented retirement. 
Uh, and that kind of works for a life of 70 years. I'm going to get my education, I'm going to work, and then I'm going to retire. But in the 100-year life, we said, well, you can't just stretch this life out. If you're living to 100, which is a plausible uh, um, uh, uh, t- forecast for children being born today, you know, that involves working for 60 years. You know, we thought we'd call the book 100-year life, not a 60-year career, because it sounds a bit more appealing, 100-year life. But you, know, you can't anything you learn at 20 it's not really going to still be relevant when you're you're 70 and 80 particularly with technology coming along which we look at in a new long life so and then it's not just your skills and whether you can have a job it's also your health if you carry on working as hard as most people do will your health be any good in 50 60 years time um then there's your relationships and your sense of purpose so the free stage life is not well suited for the length of life that we're facing living to 90 or 100 so we talk about a multi-stage life your career is going to have several different stages some of those stages might be chosen by you you know i'm, I'm fed up i want to do something different others may be forced upon you like you've just get laid off because of a pandemic occurs or technology takes your job away and as you go through these different stages you're going to have different aims and ambitions sometimes it'd be about money other times a different work-life trade-off but there's huge implications that come from that for corporates but also for individuals which is you're going to have to reinvent yourself and deal with more transitions so that brings along lifelong education how you manage your finances but also, you know, your sense of identity and purpose better not be too aligned with a particular job or a particular career stage if you're going to go through a multi-stage life. You do talk a little bit in the book about artificial intelligence and technology and this whole idea of jobs that just will no longer be done by humans, at least partially. Uh, Linda, do you think that's overblown or is that a, a, a real concern that people should think in terms of, Uh, you know, a majority of jobs being done by robots. You know, the way that that, that I would look at it is not to look at your whole job, Robert, but actually look at parts of your job. So, you know, most of us, if I were to follow you around for the day, there's probably about 30 tasks that you do. In my job, there's about 30 tasks. And some of those are going to be automated. Now, you know, if you do a job as you do, which is cognitive, then those tasks are going to be automated by uh, AI or machine learning, and and some of them already have. You've probably seen the way your jobs change. If you do a job which is more physical, like you work in a depot, then your job is going to, some of those tasks are going to be taken by by robots. And you see in some countries, you know, Korea and Japan particularly, massive, massive investment in robots. So it's not that you're going to, all of your job is going to disappear. In fact, for very few people, that's going to be the case. But for almost all of us, some of our job is going to disappear. And in general, the bit that disappears is the bit that machines can do, and the bit that stays is the bit that only humans can do. And so for almost all of us, it means you have to upskill and reskill. And that's why one of the things we talked about so much in the new long life is the importance of upskilling and reskilling. Because as, as uh, machines take more and more of your work, therefore, the bit that's left for humans becomes more and more complex, either more and more complex physically or more and more complex emotionally or more and more complex cognitively. So we have to upgrade, in a sense, as fast as machines upgrade. But also, I think there's something that's absolutely right. And then there's something else happening, which is machines are becoming even better at being machines. 
So kind of humans have to become better at being humans. So a lot of the things we do, which are a bit machine-like, it could be routine stuff or doing calculations. Machines just do that. And if you look at the human skills, you know, that's an interesting mix of things because some of them are going to be like creativity, ambiguity, but also it's things like relating to other humans and understanding and empathy, uh, which is a different skill set from just you know, learning how to do multiplication, et cetera. And, you know, that, so that I think is going to be the big effect. Going back to your question about will it destroy all jobs? We don't know. It depends on how technology unfolds. Do we set it up to automate or to augment what people do? But certainly a lot of jobs will be at risk. I think the biggest impact for most people, as Linda said, will change what they do and how they do it in their job, requiring the need to skill. But there's also another possibility, which goes back to your question about time and binging on time. Um, technology normally reduces the length of the working week. And so we may find either more flexible allocations of time across the week or we end up with a four-day working week. So, you know, one of the things we've got with these longer lives and technologies, how do we restructure time, both the big units of time, but also the small unit? Part of the uh, of what you're suggesting is that people will have to work longer, right? If we live longer, we should be expected to work longer. You had at some point in the book had written that, you know, maybe some people will have to think of retiring in their 70s and even younger folks, maybe their 80s. And you cited a stat uh, from, I think, Jim Perturba of MIT that said that for every 10 years of longer life expectancy, we should be expected to work another seven years. But you also bring up a good point, and that is um, we, we maybe have to think about changing the way, the way we think of being old and that because there is ageism today and the idea that if you're in your fifties or sixties, you're maybe not as productive, you're not as on top of things. So how do we do that? How do we change the idea of what it means to be perfectly productive and 70, if not 80 years old, working a full-time job? You know, I think, um, Robert, that that's going to change well, we need we need to build a story that makes it change. And, and one of the reasons why Andrew and I are so sort of proud of that book is it's actually one of a whole series of other people who are saying we've absolutely got to rethink age. Um, you know, how we age is changing dramatically. People in their 60s and 70s and 80s are perfectly capable of doing amazing jobs. You only have to look at the US to see that. Um, and so we have to do that. And part of the reason at the end of the book, we said, what does it mean for education? What does it mean for corporations? What does it mean for government? Is actually, it's those institutions that are, are often very ageist, you know, very ageist about when can you go to university or college, very ageist about when can I employ you, very ageist about when should I give you a pension. And so we think that individuals really have to themselves become role models. And it's amazing, isn't it, how many people in their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s are saying, I want you to reconsider how you think about me. My identities change, my narratives change, but at the same time, they're held back by what institutions are doing. So we need to both focus on what individuals can do, but also say to institutions that frame our life, you also have got to change. It's going to be a hard one to do. I mean, with the, you know, there, there's some big barriers to seizing the advantages of longer life, but we are really, really messed up about age. The first thing is we've turned the fact that 
on average, we're living a lot longer and we're healthier for longer into a bad news story. We call it an aging society. I mean, it's extraordinary how we turn that. You know, there's fewer children to mourn because we live longer. There's fewer parents dying in middle age and leaving families insecure, more grandparents meeting grandchildren. And we call this an aging society beset by problems. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement, truly extraordinary. And then we're messed up about aging because what's sort of really happening is, you know, on average, the amount of years of life we're healthy are kind of remaining the same. So most of the years of life we're getting are kind of in decent health. What's really happened is most of the years have sort of come at late middle age, a sort of age I'm at. We've sort of got this extended middle age now. And true, there's still an end of life and still a frailty time, but it's about how we use that additional time at the end of middle age, which you know, given that's where I am, I think that's a massive positive. I was looking at the data today, I'm 55. Um, when I was born, someone who was 55, a British male, had another um, 18 years of life left. Today, it's 27. I'm really keen on those extra nine years. You know, it's a 50% increase. So that's a great opportunity. But because we measure age chronologically, this is all about being older. But actually, you know, if, if I'm further away from when I'm going to die, if my health is better, I'm sort of younger for longer. And that's the positive. But we've got so many out-of-date stereotypes, partly because in the past, older people used to have much less education. So we think older people are stupid and not productive, um, partly because we're not used to so many old people and we're just not aware of the diversity with which people age, which is the key thing. We lump everyone together over 65 and say they're old, which is just the most ludicrous assumption. You wouldn't say everyone under 65 is the same. There's a single under 65 market or this is what people under 65 need. So we have to move away from that. And how are we going to do it bit by bit? But, it, but sort of people like Fauci, for instance, are going to be great because they're showing that actually, my goodness, you can be productive and effective. And, and those, I think, are actually going to be the pioneers and say, yeah, well, why not? Why shouldn't you? Yeah, Dr. Fauci just turned 80 on on Christmas Eve, I believe, which is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and picking up on, on some of those themes in the book, you mentioned that you cited a stat that people who have a positive self-perception of aging on average live seven and a half years longer and that our health is determined only 25 percent by genetics. So we have a, a good bit of control in terms of exercise and eating well and all those types of things in terms of being healthier in later years. Um, you also talk a little, a good bit in the book about um, how many systems, government, uh, business, are set up for this older situation. For example, pensions, right? Pensions are set up to pay out for people uh, in their 60s or so, haven't kept up with longer lives. So more and more of GDP and resources have to be devoted to these things and social security and, and Medicare in the US. At some point there has to be some sort of almost an intergenerational compromise so that the older folks can get most of what they're promised, but they might have to work a little longer, but that might mean younger folks might have to pay a little more in taxes and may not get as much as, as they're older. Do you see that as being a huge conflict or do you think most of, of societies will find a way to negotiate that? This is all Andrew thinks about these days. So <laughs> I, would be, I would hate to butt in, let, let him, yeah. So, you know, what you said, Robert, is absolutely right. That's the solution. Uh, and actually, I do really worry for the younger generation because they're the ones with the longest lives who right now the map of life doesn't seem to be working for them. You know, the, the sort of education costs, the lack of pension security. Yeah. So governments 
urgently need to tackle how we create a life plan that works for the longer life that the young are, are facing. And, and unfortunately, working longer for everyone has to be part of it. I mean, I see retirement in economic terms. And the longer you live, the longer you have to work, unless wages grow very fast, in which case you can retire earlier. And for much of the 20th century, life expectancy increased, but wages grew very fast. So we saw retirement come earlier and earlier, and we had a longer and longer retirement. But wages aren't growing very fast. Life expectancy is still increasing for many. So we have to push back our retirement. And if all we focus on retirement, we have a problem, because how do you keep healthy and productive throughout all that time? But going back to your intergenerational point, a healthy society would bring people of different ages together and say, okay, how do we get this to work? Let's look at intergenerational equity. One of the things that really worries me is generational labels because we've become obsessed with baby boomers, millennials, and Gen X. And the problem with that is that, you know, right now the young have never had a better chance of getting old. That's what all these mortality trends mean. But if you see things as Gen X versus baby boomers, Gen X will never become a baby boomer. So you get this zero sum conflict. You've got something I haven't because you're old. We sort of need to go back to just using phrases like young and old rather than boomers and millennials mm. to avoid that sense of zero sum conflict. And I really worry about how politics, you know, of course, in so many ways is becoming polarized. But the generational debate is part of it because the truth of the matter is things aren't working for anyone of any age. The old people dying in care homes during the COVID crisis were not looked after and not thought about. The people lost their job in their 50s and 60s who won't get another one and therefore are going to see their pension being affected because of ageism. And then, of course, the young who also have suffered terribly during this crisis. It isn't working for anyone right now. And, of course, if we just get that generational conflict, it's going to make the politics brutal and ugly and get in the way of actually getting the solution for everyone. You mentioned how we have been retiring early and earlier uh, and to a point, at least here in the U.S., where it's kind of leveled off. I mean, I think the average retirement age reached about 63, 62 and then and has moved up a little bit since 2010. I think part of that is thanks to the thanks, quote unquote, to the dot com crash and the Great Recession. A lot of people realize, OK, I don't have as much money. Um, but as the retirement guy at The Motley Fool, and I've been studying this now for for more than 20 years, I have to say, I'm not even sure retirement is good for us. So, Linda, what is the evidence? Is retirement, is full-time leisure good for people? No, you're right. You're right, Rob. That's probably why you're Finally. doing this job for another 20 years. <laughs> At least no, I mean, you know, the, the thing is that with a three-stage life, it's it sort of, retirement sort of worked because you're exhausted and then you're only going to live for eight years anyway. So that was fine. Um, but actually, if you live to 100 and you retire, let's say 60, that's a long time on the golf course. And, and actually, we know that people who retire early um, don't you know what what happens when you retire early is that your social capital starts to reduce you know your networks your friendships um, your cognitive abilities start to reduce because you're not you know you're not engaged in work so much so for me the number one issue is about good work so so part of the question is if we are going to work into our 70s and 80s and I think we should we need to find ways of working which are more flexible 
and which are which 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 is work that makes us healthy. And one of the interesting and actually potentially positive aspects of the of, of the pandemic, Robert, has been it's shown us that there are different ways of working. You know, the fact that so many of us were able to work from home, not everybody, of course, that people work flexibly, that everybody became a digital native. And actually, I think that as we move out of this period, we'll, we're going to ask ourselves, well, you know, how do we make work better? How do we make work good? And that's about really bringing more flexibility. Because, you, you know, this whole point about the three-stage life is that all of your downtime, in a way, came at the very end. But imagine that you could reallocate that downtime right the way through to different parts of your life. Maybe it would say... I want to take Fridays off because I'm going to work to a hundred. I'm going to work until I'm 80. So why don't I take Fridays off? Or maybe it will say, actually, I'm only going to have two kids. So why don't I take some of my retirement and reallocate it to looking after my kids when they're young? Or why don't I take some of that time and spend a year on a gap year when I'm 40 or 50 or 60 or 70? And it's that re, as Andrew said earlier, the the reimagination of how we spend our time, I think, sits at the heart of this question of retirement. Because most people, if you say to people, do you want to work till you're 80? They say, well, I don't want to carry on working as I am now. And so we have to find a way that really builds on some of the flexibility that we've experienced during COVID. But at the same time, realizing that we can take time out. And of course, that means that corporations have to learn that actually people can move in and out in a much more flexible way. And I'm hoping that COVID is an invitation to organizations to think more creatively about that. As you said, the financial issues have changed. Longevity and rates of return mean that retirement is harder and harder to achieve. But it's almost not a good starting point because it's seen as in that three-stage life as a binary issue. I work, I don't work. And I stop work at the same time as everyone else, which of course makes retirement more appealing because my friends and uh, family are uh, also uh, not working. But that's gone. And so, of course, what you've got now is people now doing more part-time work or changing roles, often by choice, sometimes because they have to. So there isn't really the same watershed moment. But I think the other thing that's so important about ageing is this diversity, because, of course, it depends what job you're doing, whether carrying on working for longer is a good thing. If you're doing hard manual labour or a bad job, as Linda was saying, it ain't good to carry on working. And then, you know, the other thing is that we talk about work, but it's really about engagement, purpose and productivity. And that doesn't always have to be paid if you've got enough finances. It's something more about actually being part of something else, a reason to get out of, of bed. So, the you know, it, this, of course, then is, means that things are incredibly complicated. People have got different financial needs, different health needs, different skills and different purpose. But it also means there's more options. So it becomes much more personalized and individualized but certainly the date at which people stop working is just increasing and has been increasing to 20 30 years the number of americans working after the age of 70 has doubled the last 10 years and the bureau of labor statistics thinks it's going to double again in the next 10 years um and you know that can be quite positive because in my calculation suggest over the 10 years before covid all of the employment growth in the G7 countries came from people aged over 55. So this is actually not just good for the individual, it's kind of good for the economy. Uh, quite extraordinary. Just have a few minutes left here, but I did go, wanted to get a couple more questions. I was reading your book both as for myself, but also as a parent. I have four kids ranging in age from 16 to 29. And I was thinking, 
how is this all going to affect them? So I don't know if your parents, but what do you, how do you think this changes for kids who are in high school going to college, or as you would likely say, going to university or right out of it, or in, even if you have kids, has it changed the advice you pass along to them? Well, we're both, you know, we both have children. Uh, and in fact, we also teach a lot of uh, young adults at London business school. You know, in fact, sure. I teach um, a really popular MBA program on uh, helping people think about their future. It's called the future of work. And and I guess what I would say to my kids, and, I, and Andrew, I'm sure would say the same, is that coming back to Andrew's point about optionality, that you know, you've got a lot more options available to you than, than, than any other generation. And you know, exploring those and realizing that you have a multi-stage life is, is a, an astoundingly important uh, model to have. And that's certainly with my MBA students, I invite them to think about what would that look like? You know, you could, what, what is your possible self? You know, what, what is it that you could be at any point in time? And that sort of liberation from the idea of the three-stage life is in, really important to young people and really important to our students. Um, our book, uh, our last book, The Hundred Year Life, became one of the most popular books in Japan. It was made into a manga. And in the new book, you'll see that there are some Japanese characters, Robert, we know our audience. And, and part of that was to help Japanese kids particularly, who are very, very um, in awe of their parents, really, in the way their parents lived, to actually say to them, you can be much more courageous about your life and think about it in all of its optionalities. And that makes for a very exciting uh, way of talking to kids. Yeah. And one thing I found, well, one of my motivations of writing the book was thinking about why are my kids not listening to me and why are they doing things differently? Uh, and then I realized they've just got a very different future and a very different world for all sorts of reasons. So one thing I learned is perhaps not to offer advice, but also just as I did things differently from my parents and not just in reaction, but because, you know, I got married later, had kids later, started a job late. So are they doing it as well? They should be doing things differently from me, just as I should be behaving differently from past cohorts of 55-year-olds. They need to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Linda says, therefore, investing in options and exploring is really, really important. Um, so, yeah, it made me offer less advice and also try and encourage them to um, explore. Final question here. In the book, you talk, discussed all kinds of things that different institutions could do, governments, corporations, even healthcare systems. Let's say you two have been named queen and king of the world. Don't worry, I don't think Oprah is going to interview any of your relatives. But what's the one most important thing you could change? And I know you, you, you wrote about all kinds in the book, but what's the one thing you would change across either just in government or something that would go across all those institutions. Linda, you, you want to try? Yeah. My, my vote, Robert, if I ruled the world would be paternity leave. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I think of all the interventions that corporations and governments could make, it would be enabling and, and encouraging men in their long lives to spend more time looking after their kids. Andrew. Uh, not unrelated to that, I, I would focus on a major shift towards public preventative health focused on older people. Uh, we have got these longer lives, most of it's healthy, but not all of it is. And if we can be healthy for longer, our individual lives are better, we can work for longer, 
it's a massive, massive benefit. We can enjoy it all the more. So we need to start thinking about the second half, not the first half of life, and how we make sure that people everywhere are as healthy as they possibly can be. Very fascinating. Again, our guests have been Linda Gratton and Andrew Scott, the authors of a truly thought-provoking new book, The New Long Life, a framework for flourishing in a changing world. Linda and Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's fun. Thank you. For having us, Robert. Well, that's the show. It's edited frothily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.